afternoon. This is Father Toby live from Cambridge with your word for today. And I'm going to uh, reflect, as has become my sort of custom on Mondays, on uh, on the Sunday uh, readings. And uh, I'm going to begin today by reading from the uh, Gospel of yesterday, which was Matthew chapter 3. In due course, John the Baptist appeared. He preached in the wilderness of Judea, and this was his message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. This was the man the prophet Isaiah spoke of when he said, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare a way for the Lord, make his path straight. This man John wore a garment made of camel hair, with a leather belt round his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole Jordan district made their way to him, and as they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, they confessed their sins. But when he saw a number of Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to fly from the retribution that is coming? But if you are repentant, produce the appropriate fruit, and do not presume to tell yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. Because I tell you, God can raise children for Abraham from these stones. Even now the axe is laid to the roots of the trees, so that any tree which fails to produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown on the fire. I baptize you in water for repentance. But the one who follows me is more powerful than I am, and I am not fit to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn in a fire that will never go out. Sleep is a funny thing. You regularly hear retired people who now have all the time they wish to sleep in complain that they can't sleep past seven. And parents who would have done anything to have their children sleep longer as toddlers then move to complaining that their teenagers will never get up. I remember my mother recounting how she would try various diversionary tactics to entertain me when I had woken up and she wanted a little longer in bed. She told me how one day she decided to play We're Going on a Car Journey. And she told me of her horror when she said to me, so what's the first thing that happens if we're going on a car journey? I replied, we say, Chris, where are the keys? Chris, I can't find the keys. Out of the mouth of babes and all that. Um, and I hope my mother forgives me for publicly shaming her on the radio. Um, she has many, many good qualities, but remembering where the keys were wasn't the best of them in my childhood. But I heard another story of a man seeking more sleep and a diversionary tactic recently. His daughter comes into the bedroom about 5am saying, Daddy, I'm bored. And bleary-eyed, he finds a magazine that has a map of the world in it. And pretty pleased with himself, proceeds to tear up the map, dividing the countries. And fairly certain he's brought him, bought himself an hour at least, says to his daughter, Here, darling, 
Put the world back together and come back to me when you're finished. To his horror, she returns five minutes later with the world correctly reassembled. Simultaneously somewhat impressed and disappointed, he replies, How on earth did you manage that so quickly? She said, Simples. I think she'd been watching those Compare the Meerkat adverts. But she said, There was a picture of a man on the other side. When I put the man back together right, then the world was back together. Get the man right, Daddy, and you get the world right. Simultaneously impressed by his daughter and depressed that his plan for sleep had failed, the man got up. But the daughter had said something profoundly true. So much of our conversation these days is about structures. We talk about structures of sin. We talk about the need for greater legislation on this or that. People block streets, tie themselves to railings. People take to the streets in protests, and they do it demanding that the law be changed and be changed now. And it sometimes seems as if there was an idea that if only we got the perfect set of laws, then everybody would be perfect and we would be living in utopia. But the reality is that perfect laws without just people will just be broken or worked around. There will be no just society without just men and women. No amount of legislation will bring about fairness without fair men and women enforcing it and promoting it. So Jordan Peterson, who I appreciate is a bit like Marmite to many, has a real point when he tells activists, especially young ones, to tidy their bedroom before they take to the streets. The point is one, though, that had been made hundreds of years earlier by St. Catherine of Siena, who told us to set our own houses in order before trying to change the world. And the point of St. Catherine, if not of Jordan Peterson, was not that we should give up on changing the world, but that we should recognize that the first and most powerful change in the world that I can bring about is change in me. It was this insight that led her to say, be who God meant you to be, and you will then set the world on fire. And seeking to change me before I seek to change other people is also chastening, because I realize that it is not easy and that I am not perfect. But it is in this moment of the simultaneous recognition that I am not perfect and that I cannot simply change by myself that the gospel becomes good news. C.S. Lewis begins his remarkable set of talks broadcast on the BBC radio during World War II, on which note, if you want to feel inadequate as somebody who speaks on the radio, just read and listen to him. But he begins his series of talks which get turned into the book Mere Christianity with a reflection on the natural law, or what we might also call the moral law. He observes that of all of creation, we are the only creatures of which it can be observed that there is something that we ought to do and yet do not, and that of all the creatures we are the only ones to whom somebody would attribute moral culpability. In essence, he argues that across all times and all places, 
There are certain forms of behavior that we know are good and others that we know are bad. He deals brilliantly as well with the objections for such a timeless moral law in the second of his talks. But his basic argument is that all of us can look to our own lives and see that there are things we should have done, probably things that we should have done today even, and that we did not do. I'm going to quote you one part here where he talks about this universal law of human nature and morality. This law was called the law of nature because people thought that everyone knew it by nature and did not need to be taught it. They did not mean, of course, that you might not find an odd individual here and there who did not know it, just as you find a few people who are colorblind or have no ear for a tune. But taking the race as a whole, they thought that the human idea of decent behavior was obvious to everyone. And I believe they were right. If they were not, then all the things that we said about the war were nonsense. What was the, what was the sense in saying the enemy were in the wrong, unless right is a real thing, which the Nazis at bottom knew as well as we did and ought to have practiced? If they had no intent, if they had no notion of what we mean by right, then though we might still have had to fight them, we could no more have blamed them for that than for the color of their hair. It's quite a powerful argument. But as he points out, it's only human beings who seem to exist in this state of an inability to naturally fulfill our nature. It's not perhaps where you'd expect a series of talks on the essence of Christianity to begin. One might expect it to begin at the beginning with a discussion of creation. But no, he begins here. And I think it's a brilliant beginning because I think the recognition of our brokenness is the fundamental disposition for our openness to a savior. And that is the heart of Christianity. Our gospel, which we just read, deals with the call to repentance. And the first reading of Mass yesterday speaks of a world made new by the power of God, where the lion lies with the lamb. That is not good news if I neither recognize my need to change nor my need for help. The name of Jesus means God saves, and this is good news. But it's only good news to the sinner who desires to be transformed. Jesus saves us from despair at our sin or from the temptation to deny the reality of sin at all because we cannot live with our shame. Both those temptations exist, but the Christian life requires a certain bravery of vision and it starts with looking at me and not my neighbor and doing so honestly. It says, Houston, we've got a problem, and admits the scale of it. I am the man on the back of the picture who needs putting back together. To see clearly as a Christian is to admit that I'm in a situation that I cannot get myself out of, not alone. I am like the magazine pieces of that man that belong together, but which cannot put themselves back together. No man can pull himself up by his bootstraps, and nothing on the self-help shelves will do the trick either. 
because we need divine help. And so the preaching of Jesus begins with a call to repentance. The invitation to come to recognize Jesus begins with John the Baptist calling others to repentance. And then Jesus comes and manifests his power to lead us out of and away from sin. There's a double grace then in our faith. I spoke of it on Friday and I'll say it again because it's so important. It's the grace to see the state I'm in and the grace to believe that Christ can transform it. That's how I can simultaneously exist broken and yet full of the hope that St. Paul described in yesterday's second reading. And it's a movement of grace so beautifully described in the hope-filled words of that hymn, Amazing Grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And so I want to play for you now a really beautiful setting of Amazing Grace by some of my brother Dominicans from the uh, eastern province of the USA, the province of St. Joseph, and they have a, a wonderful um, bluegrass band called the Hillbilly Thomists, and this is their rendition of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sweet that saved a wretch like me. How once was lost, was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught, twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious death. appear the hour I first believed through many dangers tools and snares I have already come tis grace has brought has brought me safe thus far He will my shield, my shield and portion be, as long as thy fenders. When we've been there, when we've been there ten thousand years, bright shining as the sun, we've no God. 